Well, let's continue in our worship this morning. We're in Philippians 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, this word is your word, and we pray that you would feed us by it. Lord Jesus, this text is consummated in your person and your great redeeming work. We pray that you would be elevated in our eyes and that we would love you still more by it. The spirit of truth, we pray that you would illumine this text and give it to our understanding. We pray that you would plant it deep within us that we might receive it and therefore grow with respect to salvation. Lord, thank you for all of your good gifts, your word being certainly one of the foremost. We give you praise for it. We know it is our bread and our life. And so we look to you again and ask, Lord, that you would minister it to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we end or head toward the end, I should say, of the month of October, uh, many of you are scurrying about and making preparations for the Harvest Festival. Maybe your family still participates, perhaps, in some sort of Halloween celebration, but we need to remember that tied up in all of that are the roots of the Protestant Reformation. You recall the very conscientious young man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, and he famously nailed his 95 theses, a protest against the selling of indulgences upon the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. He did that not by accident. He knew that November 1st marked All Saints Day and that many would be coming to the church and he wanted his theses to be seen and read. Historians mark that great day, many of them anyway, as the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation. If you know anything about Luther, you know that he struggled mightily. He was an intriguing guy. He is an interesting study, to be sure. But he wrestled especially with this very important and fundamental question that ought to be at the forefront of the mind of every man, woman, and child. And that is, how is a sinner made right with God? He battled through his whole life, did Luther, with this very accusing conscience. He, he, he never knew if he had done enough to gain approval with God. He never knew whether he had acceptance into heaven or not. I want to give you a little bit of Luther in his own words. Quote, if ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, that's a word, if ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, I am that monk. I tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold was enough to kill me. And I inflicted upon myself as much pain as I would never inflict again, even if I could. 
I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again I went three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. I chose 21 saints and prayed to three every day when I celebrated Mass. Thus I completed their number every week. I prayed especially to the Virgin Mary, who with her womanly heart would compassionately appease her son. But what Luther could not free himself from in the midst of all of these supposedly good works was this conscience that continued to accuse him and he took assessment ultimately of his heart and he said these things. I did not love God. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners. And secretly I was angry with God and I said... As if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the Decalogue. And by that he meant the Ten Commandments. You see, Luther was on the works treadmill. Luther thought in the end of the day what really mattered ultimately was his righteousness his efforts at goodness, that somehow he could recommend himself to God as holy enough to qualify for the kingdom of heaven. And yet he had this nagging suspicion. You see, he was under the impossible requirements of an inflexible divine law, and he was chasing a righteousness he knew he could never achieve, no matter how long and how hard he worked at it. He would confess his sins, we're told by historians, for up to six hours a day. Think of it. Luther again in his own, his own words, quote, If I lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether he required something more. Well, it was in this crisis of conscience that Luther ultimately bumped into Romans 1 and verse 17. And he came to something that proved revolutionary in his thinking about salvation. The text reads, for in it, that is the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You see, what Luther came to understand is that God justifies a man, God justifies a man, not on account of or on part of anything that that man does to warrant the justification or the righteousness of God. God justifies the sinner by faith and by faith alone. The very righteousness that God requires Luther came to understand that God himself provides. And he provided it in his son, Jesus Christ. And so what Luther needed to do was stop working for righteousness and simply believe God who gives a satisfactory and perfect righteousness to all who look to him and to Christ in faith. Luther's spiritual pilgrimage really in many ways is very much like the Apostle Paul's. We've been considering in Philippians 3 Paul's personal testimony, his spiritual autobiography. He's, he's giving his testimony and he tells us in verse 1 that he called the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. That is to, to take delight in their relationship with Christ, to treasure all the benefits and blessings they had in him, to remain fixed on Christ, not on themselves. And then he cautioned the Philippians that there were those who were seeking to undermine these very, this very fundamental reality that we, we are righteous in Christ as a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no man should boast. It comes through faith and it is a free gift of God's grace. But there were those that he referred to as the dogs, those Judaizers, as we mentioned, who, who came into the church at Philippi. They were always dogging Paul's heels. They were always 
seeking to go into every church after Paul left to corrupt the simplicity and purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they would say that Jesus Christ is not enough. Faith is not enough. Essentially, it, you must become a Jew before you can become a Christian. You must accept and receive all of the Mosaic stipulations. You must not only seek to enter by those stipulations, but you must maintain the law in order to remain saved. Yes, salvation has something to do with the faith of Jesus, but ultimately it has mostly to do with Moses. Therefore, you must be circumcised because that was one of the stipulations. He calls them the false circumcision. Verse 3, he gives us a threefold description of the two, true child of God. True Christians worship in the Spirit of God. True Christians glory in Christ Jesus. The word means boast. That is their singular boast. It is him. And they place no confidence, not some confidence. And beloved, you need to hear this with fresh ears this morning. Not some confidence in the goodness of their life, no confidence in that. None whatsoever. So then Paul comes to verses 5 and 6 and he uses his own religious experience to make the point that God gives righteousness freely to all who hope in Christ and that man cannot earn favor with God by self-righteous effort. Paul essentially says, look, I was born right and I behaved right. If anybody could get into the kingdom of heaven by law keeping, you're looking at him. It's an amazing testimony. That statement is very much like Luther's, if any monk could get in by monkery, right? Paul is saying if any Jew could get in by the pursuit of the Mosaic law, I'm your guy. And he comes to a conclusion that that kind of man-made, self-reliant righteousness falls short of anything that could ever attain to the favor of a holy God. And he comes to this very critical realization that the only thing that will ever qualify him for the kingdom of heaven, the only thing that will ever reconcile him to God, the only righteousness that God will receive would have to come from outside of Paul. It would have to be what Luther called a foreign righteousness, a righteousness not his own. So we come to this question. What's necessary for a man to be made right with God? Well, two things, and I'm going to give them to you right up front. These are our two headings this morning. The first is this, you must reject and even repudiate your own righteousness. You've got to abandon your own righteousness. And then secondly, you must receive and rely entirely upon the righteousness of God given through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, most of you sitting here this morning say, I've heard this before. I know you have. And I want to remind you of the things that I heard again this morning. Some of you did. Peter says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of of reminder. You see, Paul says it in verse 1, doesn't he? <laughs> to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is no safeguard for you. Now, you young people sitting in here, I'm going to talk to you so that your parents' pride can be preserved, okay? But, but oftentimes you have a tendency to grow weary with the same old story from your folks. Don't do that. This is God's design, that as things are repeated, you would learn them, you would internalize them, you'd be refreshed in them again. They'd grow deep roots, and they would stick in you. Your parents still struggle with this, by the way. 
So Paul says it's no trouble. Peter says it's no trouble. And I'm saying to you this morning, though I do not walk in their footsteps, obviously, but it is no trouble for me to remind you this morning of some very fundamental things. How is a sinner made right with God? Beloved, it's always about the fundamentals. You just can never lose the fundamentals. Number one, you must reject and repudiate your own righteousness. Look at Paul's rejection of his own righteousness. Look at verse 7, just by way of brief review. Whatever things were gained to me, he's talking there about his own righteousness. Whatever things were credit to me and to my righteousness, my efforts at, at being good, at being holy, at accomplishing God's pleasure, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is commercial and accounting language, and Paul looks at everything as he, as he looks at the ledger of his life this ledger that he would one day present before God and say, you see why you should let me into heaven? I mean, look at the prophet column. I was circumcised the eighth day. You can see it right there. And Lord, you know this. Beyond that, I, I, was, I was one who was born of the nation of Israel. And I was of that very elevated and special tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew, born of Hebrew parents. We kept all the Hebrew customs. And as to the law, Lord, I didn't, I didn't take the low road. I went the route of the Pharisee. We were so particular about things. We were overly particular about things. And beyond that, he tells us in Galatians that he was, he was doing better in class than all the rest of his countrymen. All of these things that Paul speaks of in verses 5 and 6, everything that he had in that profit column, he now looks at that column and he says, you know what, none of those things were profit to me. I didn't know it at the time, but all of that is a liability. <laughs> all of that religious rigor was a toxic asset. He thought he was in the black, but he came to understand that he was he was in the red, and there was nothing but debt in his life. It was a big deceptive debt, thinking, as men do, that essentially if I'm good enough, God will receive me because he's like my teacher in high school. He threatened things and did not do them. Ultimately, he graded on a curve, and I found that if I brought him a nice mug at Christmas, I always got another letter higher than I really deserved. That is not God. That was Mr. Johnson, but that is not God. God is holy. And the righteous perfection that he demands is just that, absolute righteous, moral perfection, flawlessness. And you and I have already messed it up. And we have no answer. And so God comes into Paul's life and invades and, and does a divine audit and Paul begins to understand, lo and behold, I'm in real trouble. Everything that I thought was a credit is working against me. I was not rich in righteousness. I'm bankrupt in pride and sin. I'm flat broke, spiritually speaking, and in, in deep debt. Well, then he comes to verse 8, and he really expands the thought. This is the same thought. He's just building on it. And he begins with a series of particles in the Greek language that I, I won't take the time to read to you. It would only frustrate you as it frustrated me trying to play it all out. One commentator says it's very challenging to translate, and here's his rendering. Furthermore, I do indeed, therefore, continue to consider. Or in the vernacular, more than that. Furthermore, I do indeed, therefore, continue to consider. It's almost like Paul is, is fumbling to get it out of his mouth and he's trying to get it out quickly. It's very emphatic. He's very enthusiastic. He's seeking to spit this thing out. 
And he says that what he had counted in verse 7 as loss in the past, he is still counting to be loss in the present. This was a fixed position that Paul held, a fixed attitude towards his life of seeking to earn God's favor by works. He looks at it all and he says it's a giant loss. In fact, more than that, he says he counts all things to be loss. He's suffered the loss, he says, of all things. There is a broadening at this point. He looks at his former life in Judaism, all of those inherited assets he got by being born to the right parents, all of, all of those earned assets of having worked so diligently to keep the law externally, Anything and everything that formerly gave him confidence before God, all of the adulation of those around him who would have thought, boy, Paul is really a, a really super godly guy. And he was elevated to the, to the heights of Phariseeism. He had status. All of it. His Jewish lineage, his Hebrew heritage, his, his morality, his law-keeping, his religious rigor, his, his zeal, his self-discipline. You can just keep that word self in front of you. This is what Paul is abandoning, really. At the end of the day, his self-respect, his self-righteousness, his self-reliance, his self-satisfaction. He, he casts a glance forward to the day of judgment when he would have to give an account for his life, when he would have to present his resume. And he was very quickly trying to erase all that he had written in Phariseeism because he realized that, that all of that, he'll never get the job. He'll never be received. He'll never be accepted. All that was in the prophet column is now in the lost column. All that he thought would justify him will only condemn him. And here's the thing, beloved. He rejects that. He abandons that. He throws it, if you will, overboard. He lets it sink to the bottom of the sea. He has no interest any longer in upholding any of those things except to show by way of, of contrast that man cannot make it in relationship to God if you're going to go the route called law. You must go the route called grace. You cannot get to God by working. You must get to God by resting in the provision that God brings in his son. He counts it all loss. But he goes further than simple rejection. And I want you to think about this. He, he repudiates his reputation. He repudiates that righteousness. He, there's attitude with this. He casts it away from him. He thrusts it away. He spurns it. You could even say he disdains it. Look at verse 8 again. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of uh, uh, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This is a step further in his accounting. He, he looks back, and his settled evaluation is that all of that self-reliance, all of those efforts at earning God's favor, had to go. And there's this radical shift in the way that he, he looks at his former moral and religious life and he, he looks at it and he calls what New American Standard says is rubbish. The word is scubalon. It, it, it can be translated in a variety of ways, two of them primarily. It can mean excrement, dung, manure. Or it can be translated as trash, refuse, garbage, rubbish, anything that would be left over from, from, from the night's meal and dessert and whatever else, maybe the morning uh, oatmeal, whatever gets thrown into that muck bucket and tossed out onto the trash heap, that's the way that Paul is thinking about his former pursuit of righteousness through works. Some commentators are persuaded that Paul really means here probably the refuse because they're looking back at verse 2 at those scavenging dogs. And he's saying, look, 
that's the kind of stuff that dogs like to eat. They, they, they put pride in the fleshly works. They love the fact that they're circumcised. They're going to assert that as number one before God on judgment day. The emphasis, though, really is, is it's twofold. He has the idea of worthlessness and filth. J.I. Packer calls it, quote, a coarse, this is just the way a British guy would describe it, right? A very coarse and ugly, violent word. Right, exactly. It is coarse and it's ugly. Another commentator, the choice of the vulgar term stresses the force and totality of this renunciation. Beloved, there is a, tri- a time for, for strong language, but you'll notice Paul doesn't use it when he whacks his finger with a hammer. Paul uses strong language when he's speaking about his own righteousness, his own goodness, his own futile efforts to recommend himself to God. If we could put it the way he puts it in Galatians, he he looks back at the fact that he had this, this, this framework of the law that he he had that he was seeking to climb this ladder or make his way up a stairway to heaven. And Paul says, man, that is the ultimate offense because it nullifies the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You go into an airport and they say if you're healthy... When you get to the stairs and you have a choice between the stairs and the escalator, you'll take the stairs. Paul says, I've been taking the stairs all my life. And what he came to understand is, no, no. Salvation only goes to those who ride the escalator of righteousness to heaven. It is a power provided by God that is not born of you in any way shape, or form. It's scubalon trying to do it on your own. You see, Paul understands Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And that is a very graphic reference to menstrual cloths. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. There are seeds of self, wrong motivations. Every work that you've ever done or ever will do will fall short of earning merit with God. And Ephesians tells us what? That God has created us. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the credit ultimately for every good work you'll ever do, every fruit we harvest, we sing these words, is a gift from your hand. We've got no boast. Brother, sister, I ask you this morning, are you willing today to anchor this truth so deeply and to affirm it so completely that you will put away that, that thing that you go through in your bedroom when you sit on the bed and you begin to get anxious and you think to yourself, I haven't done enough. I've got to do better Beloved, I tell you that's an offense to God. If you are relying even 1% on your own righteousness to satisfy God, God has been satisfied concerning those of you who have trusted in Christ because he is satisfied in the perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience, the perfect obedience, the sinless perfection of his son. He's satisfied in that. And if you find yourself this morning in the sun, he is satisfied in you. Because in his eyes, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So Paul settles in with his accountant's pen And he distances himself from everything that used to make him feel qualified and accomplished before God. His law keeping, he says, loss. His religious ritual, excrement. His privileged heritage, garbage. His boundless zeal for God, less than nothing. All of it is dung and defilement. He repudiates it all. 
And he tells us over and over again in this text why he did this, why he thinks this way. I want you to see it again. Look at verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, I have counted loss. Why? Look at it. What does it say? For the sake of Christ. Do you see what he's saying? There, there's a choice here. I can have my things or I can have Christ's things. I can have my good works or I can have Christ's. I can have Christ's righteousness or I can rest in my own righteousness. There's a choice. Look at verse 8. I count all things loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All of my inherited assets, Paul says as a Hebrew, all of those acquired assets, I can have all of that stuff or I can have Christ. I can know Christ. Don't you love how personal this statement is, by the way? I love this when Paul settles in and he speaks about his Lord. Do you know Christ Jesus, your Lord? Have you relied entirely upon him? You see, knowing Christ is not just knowing some things about Christ. It is to know him personally. And I know that sounds trite because you hear it all the time. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. But nothing could be truer than that. Nothing could be truer than that. It is a relationship. I oftentimes hear people say, you know, he just doesn't make a very good Christian. When I hear that, I cringe. As if being a Christian is some sort of religious thing where there's a set of deeds that you must do, and if you do them, you're a good Christian. Listen, no man is good, no, not one. There is nothing good that dwells in my flesh, says Paul. It is Christ who is good. Jesus himself said it. No one is good but God alone. You see, do you know Christ? Is he precious to you? Not is Christianity precious to you? Not is doctrine precious to you? I hope it all is precious to you, but that, that's not the point. What he's driving at is a person. This is very personal. I look at all that stuff I used to be, all that stuff I wanted to be, all the stuff that made my head swell and my reputation glorious. I look at all of it and I go, man, that was a tragic competitor for the knowledge of Christ himself. I wouldn't trade my relationship with Jesus for anything. See, it's a person. He, Paul says, is of surpassing value. He is of superlative value. I'm trading up, Paul says, I'm trading dirt for a diamond. And that diamond is Jesus Christ himself. All of my filthy, threadbare rags for the regal robes of righteousness, I want to be clothed in Christ alone. Then he goes on in verse 8, I count them rubbish. Why, Paul? So that I may gain Christ. You see, we're back to a choice again. It's one or the other. Paul, Paul has in his own hand all of his own attainments, and he looks at it and he thinks, I've got two choices in one hand. I either cling to my righteousness, or I throw that away so that I might lay hold of Christ himself, that I might gain him. And Paul says, I've got a white-knuckle grip on the cross. Christ is gain. All that other stuff, manure. Christ is profit. Christ is of surpassing value. He alone is worthy. I'm going to let go of the righteousness which is found in the law that I might lay hold of a righteousness that is found in Christ and him alone. And then verse 9. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. You see, Paul wanted to be found in union with Christ, joined to Christ, a part of Christ's body, the recipient of all the blessings that are in Jesus Christ. Beloved, it is not what you have done in this life that will get you into heaven. It is who you know. It is who you know. 
And Paul says, I have but one mediator to establish peace between me and God, the man Christ Jesus. I have but one advocate, Jesus, the righteous one, who pleads my case guilty as I am before the Father. I have but one refuge from the wrath of God, one bulwark, never failing. And it's not me. It is not my tainted works. It is Christ and Christ alone. Let me be found in him. His righteousness, mine. His death, mine. His resurrection, mine. His acceptance with the Father, mine. You see, he is not only turned away from his righteousness, but he has repudiated it entirely. And my, my dear friend, I, I, I ask you this morning, as you project out to that day when you will stand before the God of heaven, what is the argument that you will provide to him for acceptance with him? Anything that begins with the perpendicular pronoun is trouble. Don't begin with I. You must begin with and end with one name. Christ Jesus, my Lord. It does not matter how good you've been. You are not better than Paul. not been as burdened as Luther to maintain obedience to the scriptures. All of that, whatever it is, whatever else you would pull up is nothing but refuse to be cast into the fire and in the end, my good friend, and it brings me no pleasure to tell you this, but I must warn you, it will end in your condemnation. You are not good enough. There is no one here and no one not here good enough to ascend to heaven. No one but Jesus Christ is righteous. And it will not stand before the perfect God who requires a perfect righteousness. And if anyone is listening this morning is to be saved, you must have a righteousness that comes from outside of you. You must have a righteousness that comes from another. And that another is Jesus Christ. You reject and you repudiate all of your own righteousness and secondly, you must receive and rely entirely upon the righteousness of God. Look at Paul's reception of God's righteousness. He states it by way of contrast in verse 9. He says, I want to be found in Christ, not, notice he starts out negatively, this is what I don't want. I'm not pursuing this course any longer, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but, he says positively, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now that is a very, very important statement. Paul says that, that righteousness for anyone other than Jesus is a path that is completely apart from law. We say it often, don't we, that salvation is by faith and not by works. But I tell you, Jesus worked. Salvation had to be accomplished. And in order for God to provide to us what we could not accomplish on our own, he sent his only son to accomplish on our behalf. He fulfilled the law in its entirety. He was, he was born, he came to, to, to Bethlehem as a baby, born as a man. God becomes man. He, he's born of a woman. He's born under the law. He lives that law out to the uttermost. All of its jot and tittles completely fulfilled. He was sinless, pure, holy, perfect, undefiled, separated from sinners. And as such, he accomplished heaven. 
He did climb the ladder of the law back into eternity for man, for you and for me. We couldn't do it, but he did it. And that law was never given to you as a means for cleansing. It was never given to you as a means of merit. It was given to you and to me as a mirror to show us our need for Christ, to show us that we needed somebody to climb a ladder that we could not. The law, Paul says, brings the knowledge of sin. And it causes us to stumble and to recognize that we need somebody else. When we're in Alaska, oftentimes I will take those high school or junior high young people out to the edge of the Yukon when talking about these things. And the Yukon River, when you stand on it at points, is a mile wide. And I would just to bring them to the futility of it, if God were to promise you that if you could broad jump the Yukon River, you could enter into the kingdom of heaven, that would be enough for him. If you could just broad jump from this shore to that shore without getting your feet wet, you're in. You can see the look on their face. It doesn't take long. That's impossible. I once did a memorial for a woman, to the best of my knowledge, who did not know Christ, and I was speaking largely to, uh, it was at a country club, she was a golfer, and, and, and I, I said to them, look, all you have to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven, if, 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 if getting into heaven were like getting into the club here, all you have to do is go out and hit a hole in one, and you'd see them all go, oh, because most of them probably still haven't hit one. Hitting a hole in one is difficult. That's not impossible. And you should have really seen their faces when I said, no, you, you have to hit a hole in one on every hole every day, including your off days. Do you understand the impossibility of being good enough for God? Have you acknowledged that? Acceptance with God by lawful obedience is impossible. And some of you are nervous even now. You're sitting there saying, Dave, you cannot tell a group of people this. They'll just go out and go crazy and sin. I say to you, no, they won't. Not if they're genuine believers, because that law now, though not a means to heaven, is a means of expressing gratitude to God. And I want to obey him. I want to honor him. And that's because I have the spirit of God within me inclining my heart to be obedient, to love his statutes, to keep his ordinances. But you see, none of it is with an aim to sort of get something from God. No, we've been set free as believers from that law that only could condemn us. Now Paul says positively, He wants the righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. In case you didn't get it, he states it again. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And I want you to note three characteristics concerning this righteousness just in this little verse. First, note that it is God's righteousness. It is his. It is his personal possession. It is the righteousness, Paul says, which comes from God. Literally, it reads this way, the of God righteousness. It is his. He is the source of it. He is the origin of it. It is his personal commodity, and he imparts it to those who look to him and ask for it. You see, Paul used to think that righteousness began with him. Just give me the law, tell me what to do, I'll do it, and you'll be pleased. Now he realizes, no, this is a righteousness that doesn't begin with me. It begins with God. Again, the righteousness that God demands, God alone can provide, and he does. And this is what Luther came to grasp. <laughs> this is what eventually brought that tortured soul to peace, is the recognition that the righteousness that God demanded of him was a righteousness that God would freely give to him through faith. You see, what he could not accomplish by spiritual sweat, God provided free of charge, at least free to Luther, costly to Jesus. And he provided it, secondly, note this, through his son, 
mean, if you've been listening at all, you've noted from verse 7 all the way down through verse 9, those, those three verses, what do we hear over and over again? Christ, 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 Christ. Five times there's a reference to Jesus in those three verses. This is a righteousness that God possesses and provides, and he does so. It has something to do with his son. And it is, as I said, a righteousness that Christ accomplished. He actually earned heaven. And just as Adam led us into sin, so the second Adam, Jesus, leads us out of it. It is on Christ's coattails that we get into the kingdom of heaven. If you're hoping to present something noble in yourself, you must die. But if you will rely on Christ and all that Christ has done, you will live. And so how do you avail yourself of that righteousness? Well, that brings us to the third thing, and it's this. It's received through faith in God's promise. Again, Paul, Paul says it twice. That righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It is God's perfect righteousness. Christ is the very ground of it, the accomplishment of it. And we attain to it through faith. That's the way it's received. Here's Paul again in Romans 3.21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the way you lay hold of the righteousness that you need. It's by trusting in Christ and by no other means. God's righteousness in Christ through faith. And it must simply be received in faith. And I'm going to add that fourth R word this morning. You, you need to rely upon it. Look at Paul's reliance upon it. And really it's all tied up in that concept on the basis of faith. It's through faith and it's on the basis of faith it comes from God in that way. That's how it's packaged and delivered. It is through faith. It's by looking at him with empty hands, realizing your spiritual need, and then looking to God to satisfy that very need. But faith is something more than simply believing a set of facts from a book. I could ask most people around the world, do you believe there was a Jesus Christ who existed and walked the earth? Most would tell you yes. Because they read about him. He had a big impact in the world. There's a movement named after him. It's called Christianity. It's particularly popular in the West. They could tell you all that stuff. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about faith. When we talk about faith, we're talking about reliance. Standing upon it. Believing God, when he speaks what he speaks in his word. That's what faith is, I, I suppose, in the simplest sense. It's, it's just taking God at his word. But again, it's more than believing a thing to be true. It's about relying on that, placing your trust in that. Since we've been speaking of the reformers, my mind was drawn to this this morning. The reformers talked about faith in three ways. There were three important components of genuine faith. The first one was called notitia. And notitia was the idea that you have to have knowledge of the truth. In order to have true faith, you must have knowledge of something. There, there has to be a ground of that faith. You've got to know something. But knowing something, having a body, a content of information, is not enough to save you. And so they said, well, there also needs to be a census, a scent. You need to look at the truth that you know and say, that truth is truth. I affirm that. I affirm what's being preached this morning. I affirm that I'm a sinner in need of grace. I affirm that Christ came to save sinners. I affirm that God supplies righteousness through faith in Christ. But that does not save you. Do you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe. You see, the demons have knowledge, and they gave assent to it. They affirmed it. They know that God is one God. But they will not bow the knee. They will not rest in that truth. They will not trust him 
in repentance and faith. What, what we're really after, what we're aiming at is what, what the reformers called fiducia. It's that deep personal trust, that genuine confidence, that total reliance upon the person and work of Christ. It is to lean on him and to trust him and him alone. So how's a man made righteous before God? Let's see what our good friend Martin Luther arrived at. Quote, Although I am a sinner by law and under condemnation of the law, yet I despair not and I die not because Christ lives who is both my righteousness and my everlasting life. In that righteousness in life, I have no sin, no fear, no sting of conscience, and no care of death. I am indeed a sinner, but I have another righteousness and another life above this life, which is Christ, the Son of God, who knows no sin, no death, but his righteousness and eternal life. He sums it up beautifully. If I would find comfort in life when I am at the point of death, I must do nothing else but apprehend Christ. I look at him and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who suffered, was crucified, and died for me. Besides him, I see nothing and I hear nothing. I ask you this morning, have you come to the point that your only answer on judgment day is Jesus? God promises to give you all the righteousness you will ever need if you will but look to Christ in faith. And God will give it to you as a gift. But you must turn away from your own righteousness, from trusting in yourself to trusting in him. Jesus earned that righteousness and he is free to give it. I would remind you that Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they should be what? Satisfied. The question is, do you hunger for a righteousness that you cannot attain to? Go to him who is the bread and he will feed you. And do you thirst for that righteousness that you cannot attain yourself, then go to Christ. He says, my blood is true drink. Are you weary and heavy laden this morning? Burdened, trying to work it all out? I tell you, go to Jesus who promises to give you rest from all of your works. Let's pray. Our Lord, what can we say to these things except that we are beggars for righteousness. And we cannot be sated on our own works. Lord, they will never satisfy. The righteousness we seek cannot be found in ourselves, but Lord, you have opened our eyes to the reality of our sin and you have taken us off the treadmill of the law and you have brought us to yourself where we find rest. And so Jesus, we extend our, our, our highest gratitude, our greatest praise, our utmost honor to your perfect name. You are our righteousness. You are our justification. You are our sanctification. Lord, you are our peace. And we thank you for your great reconciling work, for being willing to be made sin, though you were without sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in you. You're a gracious Savior. We would boast in no other. Amen.